Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. I'm going to read uh, today in Tagalog. Uh, today, God speaks to us from Psalm 13. Ikalabing tatlong kabanata ng Salmo. Panalangin para tulungan. Panginoon, hanggang kailan ninyo ako kalilimutan? Kalilimutan niyo ba ako habang buhay? Hanggang kailan ba kayo magtatago sa akin? Hanggang kailan ko dadalhin itong mga pangamba ko? Ang aking mga araw ay punong-puno ng kalungkutan. Hanggang kailan ba ako matatalo ng aking mga kaaway? Panginoong kong Diyos, bigyan niyo ako ng pansin. Sagutin ninyo ang aking dalangin. Ibalik ninyo ang ningning sa aking mga mata upang hindi ako mamatay. At upang hindi masabi ng aking mga kaaway na natalo nila ako dahil tiyak na magagalak sila kung mapapahamak ako. Panginoon, naniniwala po ako na mahal niyo ako at ako ay nagagalak dahil iniligtas ninyo ako. Panginoon, aawitan kita dahil napakabuti ninyo sa akin mula pa noon. Ito ang salita ng Diyos. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So today is uh, the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, for those of you who might be new to the rhythms of Lent, uh, Lent is uh, a part of the historic church calendar. Uh, it comes, of course, once a year. It begins on uh, Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday. It will end on Easter. Uh, and in essence, the Lent season uh, is a season in which Christians usually uh, fast something. They focus on our need for repentance and reflect on the suffering and the brokenness uh, that comes from sin and also the longing that we possess to experience the restorative power uh, of the resurrection. Now, of course, uh, fasting and repentance and reflection shouldn't just be relegated to uh, just a once-a-year thing, but much like the Christmas season uh, during Advent is a celebration and a longing for the birth of Christ, uh, Lent is a season leading to the other landmark events of Christ's coming, which of course is his death and his resurrection, and it also reminds us that he will come again, that we are still longing for him to return. Now the value that I find in Lent is the reminder that one can't understand the person and work of Jesus unless we remember our position before God and the state of the world in which we live. Uh, we'll talk about this later in the season, but the death of Jesus is as much good news as the resurrection of Jesus, and the Lent season helps us focus on that truth. In fact, to the degree that we understand the depths of our sin, the justice of God, the judgment of God, the necessity of Christ's death will also be the degree to which we think much of the grace of God. And again, Lent allows us to reflect on such things and refuses to allow us to move too quickly past sin and judgment and death. And so with all of that in mind, today, uh, as we continue on our year-long look at the book of Psalms, uh, we'll be starting a new series looking at lament in the Psalms, and we've entitled this series, uh, The Formative Power of Lament. Uh, what we're going to see throughout the Psalms, and as we took a take a look at this, the reality of biblical lament, 
I think what it's going to do is provide us with some really meaningful opportunities to reflect on the brokenness and the suffering of the world, to reflect on these, uh, the necessity of Christ and his coming and what he will accomplish when he one day returns. Um, but I also think it's going to give us language, language that I don't think we often possess uh, to use as we await that return of Jesus. So with all of that in mind, let's consider a few things today about lament. First, we're going to consider the necessity for lament, uh, the counterintuitiveness of lament, and then finally, uh, solidarity in lament. All right, so first, let's consider first uh, the necessity of, to, of lament. Uh, I want to start by just addressing the whole concept of lament. The reason is because lament's actually not something that we're particularly familiar with. However, lament is an integral part of a biblical prayer life, what we see all throughout Scripture. So what is lament? Uh, Sung Shan Ra, who was um, uh, my doctoral supervisor, also a mentor and a friend, he wrote a book on lament that was quite formative for me uh, a number of years ago. And he, he defines lament this way. He says, lament recognizes the struggle of life and cries out for justice against injustice. Another theologian said that lament is the language of suffering. Uh, Kathleen O'Connor, in in her uh, commentary on Lamentations, which was an entire book of lament, she calls it poetry of truth-telling, as lament names suffering, questions why God allows suffering, cries out to him to relieve that suffering, and often results in us not... uh, getting the answers that we desired. Lent, or Lent, lament gives voice to suffering and points our cries of anguish to God. Look at verses 1 and 2 for the perfect example of this. Verses 1 and 2 of our passage say this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day? have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? In other words, the psalmist is naming the suffering that he's experiencing. And he's even questioning and longing to know the reasons why he's suffering. But then look at verse 3. It goes on to say, Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes. So in naming suffering... He then brings these hard questions to God. His appeal in this entire passage here is at God, to God. The reason why this is important is knowing that God alone holds the answers, he centers God in the midst of the pain. In biblical lament, uh, it's important to note, is not just cries of anguish, but it is radically God-centered. It's a radically God-centered act of prayer. Putting God-centered language to our suffering is the essence of biblical lament. And we actually cannot understand the, the rhythms of biblical prayer unless we understand how important lament, this kind of prayer, is to biblical prayer all throughout Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, consider this. So the book of Psalms is uh, Israel's hymnal. These were the songs that Israel sung. These were the prayers that Israel prayed. Right? These uh, psalms, all 150 of them, shaped the people of God. These were the songs that they would have repeated constantly. And here's what's striking about that reality. That lament 
comprises nearly 40% of the Psalms that we read. Four out of 10 songs and prayers that the people of God engaged with were lament. This molded and shaped them in ways that are very unfamiliar to us because we, as I said, often lack the kind of formation that lament can provide because we don't nearly have that kind of rhythm in our singing and in our prayers. How do I know that? A number of years ago, uh, Glenn Pemberton, in his book, Hearing with God, looked at the hymnals of various denominations in the West, uh, looking for the presence of lament within those hymnals. Now remember, Israel was 40%. 40% of their prayers and songs were lament. What he found, though, looking at some uh, major Western uh, denominations, the Church of Christ only had 13% lament. The Baptist, historic Baptist hymnal only had 13. Uh, and the Presbyterian hymnal had about 19. We were the best. As Presbyterians, we can be proud. <laughs> but uh, Ra, Sunjan Ra, he goes a step further because Pemberton was looking at historic uh, uh, hymnals. So what Ra did is he looked at recent songs by looking at the top 100 songs on CCLI. If you don't know what CCLI is, it is the website that manages the licenses of most uh, contemporary music today. And what Songchan found is that of the top 100 songs, only about 5% five of, five of them could be considered lament. 5%. And he also notes that he is very, very generous in his criteria and definition of what constitutes lament. That num number is probably much less than 5%. We don't know about lament. We don't know what it is. We don't know how to do it. We don't know why we should do it because we've never given ourselves the opportunity to actually engage it the way we should. The question then is why? Why have we lost this rhythm of upwards of 40% of our prayers and songs being lament. Well, I think there's probably a lot of reasons uh, for that. But there are two that are pretty obvious to me. These aren't the only two, but I think two that are pretty obvious to me. The first reason is I think if you're a Christian from the West, it is likely that you have been discipled into believing that victory and success is the mark of a faithful Christian. Suffering is simplified as a lack of faith or the result of your poor decisions. And so if that's the case, why would you ever admit to suffering or pain when faithfulness should be victory and success? Another reason that's related is the pursuit of the American dream often allows us to avoid suffering for a while through the temporary protection that resources can bring, or those resources just simply pacify us by making us assume that we deserve better and have more. The American dream and the pursuit of it has deformed us out of rhythms of lament. I mean, if we believe that we deserve good things and that we ought to then pursue good things, we have no need for lament but instead actively resist anything that might make us uncomfortable. I mean, isn't the American dream really ultimately just about removing anything that is uncomfortable and embracing only what is comfortable? Lament is never going to be comfortable. And while victory and success and resources and pursuits of more are not necessarily bad things, 
when they become ultimate things, and when they, they become the very thing that we ultimately trust are going to bring us some kind of satisfaction or fulfillment or comfort, then as a result, we absolutely cannot get our heads around embracing suffering and seeing its formative power. This ethos, right, this culture, these assumptions, these functional beliefs about suffering for many also leads them to, this happens all the time in the West, often leads to what they see as a complete contradiction between a good God who allows suffering. That is a struggle for so many in the West because of the way we have all been discipled to believe about what we believe about suffering. I mean, one of the most common reasons people lose faith in God or disbelieve in him altogether is the problem of evil, which has tanked so many people's faith in the West. And I highlight that this is a Western problem because it's not so much the case in many other contexts around the world or over the course of history. It is only in the affluent West that we obsess over that dissonance between a good God and the reality of suffering in the world because of our obsession with victory and materialism and pursuits of more. And as a result, many, again, as a result of suffering, this view of suffering, they abandon the idea of God because they assume, well, suffering then must either mean that God's abandoned us or he just doesn't exist. But here's the thing. Lament rejects these notions about suffering as being simplistic, as being ignorant, because they miss key insights about what is actually taking place in the midst of suffering. Which leads us now to the counterintuitive. Counter, I'm going to have to get better at that word. I've got to say it a few times. The counterintuitive nature of lament. Look at the uh, extremely unexpected and counterintuitive turn of events here in our psalm. All right, so the psalm starts off, verses 1 and 2, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In other words, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? Have you uh, ever asked that kind of question? I wonder many of us probably have. But then, after all these questions, all the naming of his pain and his suffering, look at what happens in verses 5 and 6. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. What is that? I mean, this is someone who did not have their faith shaken by suffering, but rather had their faith deepened through suffering. I mean, what we're seeing in this psalm is, I'm suffering, but I trust you. I'm suffering, but my heart rejoices. I'm suffering, but I will sing your praise. I am suffering, but you have been good to me. The formative power of lament is that it, it takes our pain and it uses it as a means of deepening our faith. And over the course of church history, there have been countless examples of how this has taken place in the lives of people, in groups of people. You know, given that we are currently in Black History Month, I think it's worth noting that there is one group in the West who have not been discipled the way that many Americans have been discipled. There's a group in the West who knows what it means to name their suffering, direct it at God, and allow that lament to then deepen their faith in that God. 
There are few contexts in the United States where lament is truly understood better than in the, in the uh, black church in America. As a people, historically, they have had no choice for generations but to suffer under wicked injustice. And then on top of that, for that injustice to be legally protected. I mean, in the U.S., this is a bit of a side note, but it's at least worth noting, we really haven't had a legal democracy since um, the late 1960s. I mean, the American project is very new, as early as those, the late, or as late as the late 60s, because in our lifetime, many still were not given opportunity to participate in what America said it was about. And this oppression was and is often at the hands of those that have proclaimed Christ. It is a mess of oppression and injustice that has befallen the black church over the course of history. Yet despite all that wicked oppression, the black church maintained their faith in a God of justice nonetheless. I mean, it is a miracle of God's grace that the black church has persevered through all that it has, only to exist in the strength that it exists today. Statistically speaking, the black church is still the most faithful and enduring church in the U.S., meaning many denominations that maybe existed at the beginning of the, the founding of the nation, many of those denominations have left the authority of the Bible. Many of them have lost historic church, church teachings on a whole host of different issues. Several years ago, though, the American Bible Society, they had done some research, and they noted that the people most likely to read their Bibles regularly have a high view of the Bible, and hold to historic teachings of the church were actually black women. I mean, this is, a pow this is powerful. Because over the course of our history, black women have arguably suffered most under the injustices of our society. And yet, nonetheless, are the most likely to have a vibrant spiritual life. Why? Because of the formative power of lament of naming suffering and letting that suffering lead them to praise. Read the African-American spirituals. Read the testimonies of black women and men who acknowledge the goodness and the justice and the sustaining power of God in the face of injustice. That is the real testimony of the black church. That's the power of black history, and I would encourage you, again, we're in Black History Month, go to our website. We've got a whole bunch of uh, stories of people whose faith in the midst of injustice drove them deeper into faith, didn't cause them to run away. The irony of those who let suffering lead them away from God is that they often, as a result, leave the very basis for why that suffering upsets them at all. And what lament does is it constantly reminds us that the suffering of this world is not the way that it should be. But what's fascinating is that as soon as we walk away from God, we then lose all real objective interaction with that suffering as something that should not happen. I mean, we can only know that something is bad if we believe that something is objectively good. I mean, we can only call something unjust if we believe in the concept of justice. We can only uh, persevere if we believe that there is hope that things will get better. But here's the thing. Often the things that we tend to at best look to, to help us, they at best only temporarily keep suffering at bay. Because none of us, no matter how much we possess, 
no matter how much we have managed to protect ourselves from suffering in this life, none of us can avoid the ultimate suffering that is awaiting all of us, which is death itself. And that says nothing, of course, of being conscious of the suffering that exists all around us at all times. And even when we look at death, we know that there's still, there's something not right about it. We often talk about death being natural, and yet when we look at it, it feels so unnatural. We're all going to suffer. And if you've, been, if you've managed to accumulate enough resources to protect yourself from it for now, death still awaits you. We will all suffer. So, how then do we experience what the psalmist experienced? What many across church history have experienced? A deepening faith in the midst of suffering and even death. There's, I've mentioned this before, but there's an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to lament. And that's the book of Lamentations. Uh, it's one of the more profound books of the Bible on suffering. Uh, and it's interesting because if you ever read, the, if you read through it, it is a dark book full of anguish and questioning of God. But it's also interesting that right in the middle of the book, if you've ever read through it, there's this really profound proclamation that shows the counterintuitive nature of lament. And it reminds us of the power of inserting hope, the hope that one possesses in the God of all things, inserting hope into the anguish. Uh, I have it up for you. But in Lamentations 3, so after chapters of grief and crying out, the author inserts this counterintuitive proclamation that reframes the suffering, completely reframes it. That proclamation... I assume, this is a bit of an assumption, but given all the suffering that the prophet ends up, the poet ends up proclaiming, I have to assume that this was deep in his soul. That he was experiencing deep sorrow. And yet because this was deep in his soul, verse 19 through 21 comes out. This is what it says. It says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. In other words, I'm suffering. I am in pain. Don't forget me, God. But then he turns, and he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind. This is what strikes me. It's in him, deep within him. He's calling this to mind. What, is, what do we see that he himself now needs to call for mind in the midst of this deep sorrow? Verse 21, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's a reminder of hope in the midst of, in the midst of this pain. This reminder of hope is the, the foundation of lament. It is that reminder that refuses to allow the suffering to lead him to despair. And that constant remembrance of God's faithfulness is the practice that over time shapes us to be people who trust God, no matter what might happen. I've shared this before, but a number of years ago, uh, my grandfather passed away. And toward the end um, of his life, he was suffering with severe dementia. And every time uh, we would go and visit him, there would be the experience of him having these flashes of being lucid, 
And then he would drift off into just a blank stare. And when sitting with him, you know, there was this sense, you know, when he would drift off, there was a sense that he wanted to speak, but no words would come to him. Uh, and on top of that, my grandfather was a fireball of a Pentecostal preacher. Uh, he was never short on words or enthusiasm about anything. And if any of you have, uh, if you've ever experienced that with a loved one uh, who, whose end of life was this way, you know how uh, hard of an experience that can be. But one of the, the last times that we saw him was in the hospital, and we were sitting by his bed. And we had spent some time with him, but at this point, he was, he was gone. And there was just, there was nothing there. Uh, and so my wife suggested that we sing his favorite hymn, which was, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which actually comes from Lamentations 3. So that was a great idea. So we began to sing. And though he was gone, right, blank, as we began to sing, we could feel his breath begin to quicken. He began to squeeze my hand as we sang. The words weren't coming to him. There was nothing there. But then he just started to mumble. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Those were all the words he had in his head. It was all he could say. And by that time, um, my wife and my kids and my cousin, we were all sobbing. So much so we couldn't sing anymore. But after we stopped singing, because of the sobbing, he just kept repeating, Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And I left that room with a profound experience. <laughs> a profound sense of what it means to trust God's faithfulness regardless of the circumstances. There's nothing left in him but a profound sense of God's presence with him, even as he faced death. And in that moment, he couldn't recall any, anything, but that posture of trust was so deeply ingrained in him that the Lord called to mind and therefore gave him hope that there is hope. In Jesus. And I pray that one day when I face death, suffering of all sufferings, and there's nothing left in my mind, that that too would be my refrain, that all that's left in me would be, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus. What have Christians, like those in the black church, known? What did my grandfather know and many others like him? How can we be formed that deeply that no suffering, including death, can dissuade such joy and hope? Well, a simple answer, one simple answer, is that we just need to make lament a practice that is regularly part of our rhythms. If you've been with us here at REH over the years, you've noticed that there's never been a service when we have not brought uh, a prayer of lament, we call it the prayers of the people. And it's because we've had this conviction 
that we will be people who know the language of suffering. We will not allow our instincts as affluent, idealistic Americans to shape our prayer life. We will name the suffering within our church, in our neighborhood, in the world. We will give voice to the voiceless and the hurting. And we will always ensure that our cries are directed at God, for we believe that he is the source of our hope and our strength. So one thing that we ought to at least do is insist that we have rhythms of lament in our own lives. If we don't, we will never experience the formative power that lament can bring. But here's the thing. The practice itself is not enough. The practice itself needs to be more than just an exercise. The practice of lament itself actually needs to be us calling to mind that which brings us hope. Because it's that hope, it's the calling to mind that hope that ultimately becomes the power for our formation. And unless we embrace the truth that centers our lament, the practice of lament will be meaningless. So what exactly is it then? What is that hope? Let's consider finally the solidarity in lament. Look at verse 5. Psalmist says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Interesting. The psalmist knows that all the suffering that he's just named, all the pain that he's been experiencing, he knows that that is not the result of God's absence or indifference, but that it's actually something he must be delivered from. Salvation implies that suffering is not how things should be and that we need to be rescued from it. Again, this is the fundamental irony of those who see suffering and as a result reject a belief in a good God as a result of that as suffering. It, is, it assumes that God does not care or that he's powerless to intervene. But it does not take seriously the God of the Bible who is a God of salvation. And he's not distant or indifferent to the suffering. In fact, God is so committed to our salvation from the sufferings of this world that he stepped into that suffering. I mean, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, our high priest, is not one who is incapable to sympathize with our suffering, for he took our suffering. I mean, Jesus lived a life of oppression and marginalization. He cried tears of heartache and loss. He felt the sting of rejection and lies. He experienced the indignity of injustice. He suffered the pain of a slow and torturous death. Jesus was a man of sorrows, familiar with our pain. He is the one who on the cross, remember, he cries out the lament of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he does so for our salvation. The salvation of God is the reminder that we have not been abandoned, that we are not forgotten, that suffering is not the way that things should be, that, but that God is committed to our rescue. And lament is the way that we remind ourselves of what we have in Jesus. Imagine what would happen if 40% of our prayer life was naming the suffering all around us and also calling to mind the reason why we have hope. How deeply formative 
that could be for us. And so I wonder, do we have rhythms of lament? And what would change in us if we did? What would change as part of our our prayer life if we regularly had this hope-filled lament? What might your prayers look like? How might they change? And how might you be formed by them? I mean, what were to happen if our prayers were, God, I am sick, I'm suffering, and I don't understand why, but I trust in your unfailing love. God, I'm in need of work, and I fear tomorrow, but my heart rejoices in your salvation. God, my loved one is far from you, and I don't know what else to do to bring them back to yourself, but I will sing the Lord's praise. God, I'm struggling with my mental health, and I'm struggling to keep going. But you've been good to me. How would lament drastically change us, forming us into people that can confront and face suffering with hope? I pray that over the course of this Lent season, we take seriously that formative power. We'd engage it regularly in our own lives, that we would name the suffering and also call to mind the place from which we get our hope, which is the work of our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're a God who sees us in the midst of our pain and our struggle and our suffering. You are not indifferent to it. Yet you are so committed to undoing the effects of sin on all creation, that in Jesus you have come to us. Jesus has accomplished what we never could, which is the destruction of sin and death, all suffering. Yet, Lord, we also know that we still struggle with, wrestle with the realities of this broken world. So, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would lead us into rhythms of lament, where we would be able to name suffering, be honest about it, be honest about our own internal struggles about where you are, yet even in the midst of it, even as we're facing suffering upon suffering, we can still say, yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Call such things to mind for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.